This is WCNY's The Capitol Press Room, and we're turning our attention to the state's top court, which recently handed down some rulings impacting the state's criminal justice system. To make sense of the decisions and their implications, we're joined remotely by Rob Rosborough, author of the New York Appeals blog at nysappeals.com, and a litigation partner with Whiteman, Osterman, and Hannah. Welcome back to the show, Rob. Thanks again for having me, David. It's our pleasure. So up first, I want to go back to a ruling from the end of 2023 by the State Court of Appeals, which addressed a procedural question about witnesses identifying a criminal defendants in court. Uh, before we get to the ruling, can you explain the question at play here and I guess why it matters? Yeah. So typically when a criminal defendant is charged with a crime, they have to know who the witnesses are so that they get an opportunity to do pretrial discovery with respect to the witnesses and you know what they know so that when you get to trial, you're not facing any type of surprise. That's what the, the criminal justice system has determined is a fair way to handle criminal trials. Uh, so that's basically what was at issue in this case. You know, here we have uh, there was a shooting. There was an eyewitness to the shooting, and that eyewitness was identified during the discovery procedures in the criminal case, but was never subject to any uh, pretrial identification procedures. Like you know, you think about the the lineups they would do on Law and Order, where they bring in the witness behind the glass, and you've got five people and say pick out which one is the person who did the shooting none of that happened so what what basically happened here is that the prosecution brought in this witness to the trial to identify the defendant as the shooter and in that case the defendant said well wait a minute i'm the only one here who is on trial. So this is obviously subjective and it's prejudicing me because I didn't get a chance to talk to this person or do some discovery about what this person knew before the trial started. So ultimately, this person who's the the root of this case was convicted. What did the majority of the state's top court hold uh, about the procedures that were utilized that, that led to that conviction? So what the Court of Appeals ultimately held is that so long as there is some notice to the defendant in the pretrial procedure. So before you get to trial, the defendant is told, well, here is a list of witnesses who could potentially be called against you and has an opportunity to you know, go to the trial court and say, hey, I would like to do, you know, an identification lineup or some other type of pretrial procedure to try to understand you know, what these witnesses know, that is enough to protect typically against surprise at a trial. So the the onus is then on the criminal defendant's lawyer to do the discovery, to figure out what each of these people know and whether there needs to be some type of procedures before the trial starts to, you know, correct any prejudice and uh, that might happen to the defendant if this person is called for the first time at trial. So the Court of Appeals majority was was perfectly fine with with, you know, what happened here. And it said, you know, these types of procedures are what trial courts do in evidentiary rulings all the time. They have a lot of discretion in fashioning what's an appropriate way to go about this uh, before a trial starts. And so long as the 
helpfulness of the testimony, what we call in the, in the law call probative value of the testimony is, you know, outweighs any dangers that the the defendant is singled out because he or she is the only one at the criminal defendant's table to be identified or, or any other prejudice that the defendant might bring up, then, you know, it's it's going to be okay for this to happen the way that it did in this case. Should this ruling and the implications for future trials be considered a win for prosecutors? So what this would do is it really shifts the burden onto the criminal defendant's lawyer to be super attentive to each of the, you know, the witness lists and all of the discovery so that they are doing their due diligence on it and creates a little bit of an incentive for the prosecution to include these, you know, you obviously have to include all of the witnesses on, you know, the, in the discovery, because if you don't, then there's no way that those people are going to be allowed to testify at a trial. But if you can slip it in and hope that a criminal defendant's lawyer doesn't happen to notice it, then the prosecution gets an advantage at trial because there is a surprise witness who's going to do an identification. That's not typically how we want criminal trials especially to happen. We don't do litigation by surprise in New York, at least most of the time. Can't say that it doesn't happen, but it shouldn't happen typically. So really what this does is make sure that a criminal defendant's lawyer has to be on the ball and does everything that they're supposed to do to investigate you know, who the witnesses are, what's the evidence to get the, the defendant so that they can be ready at a trial to do cross-examination and, and try to establish that the prosecution didn't meet its burden to, to show a, a crime was committed beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, before we move on to another ruling from the state's Court of Appeals, let me reintroduce you for listeners uh, just joining us. So we're speaking with Rob Rosbro, author of the New York Appeals blog and a litigation partner with Whiteman, Osterman, and Hanna. So I want to turn to a case from the new year uh, where the court ruled on the use uh, of police dogs in these uh, certain circumstances. What is the backstory with this case and drug-sniffing dogs? Drug-sniffing dogs are used by the police as sort of an additional means to detect something that the police officers wouldn't necessarily be able to detect on their own. The cases where this has come up before, usually the police use drug-sniffing dogs when they have, you know, a, so they stop someone at a traffic stop. They either see something or smell something, and they use the police dogs to try to do an additional layer of investigation because the police dogs are trained to identify, you know, drugs. That's typically the way they're used. What's different about this case is after a traffic stop, the defendant was pulled out of the vehicle and said, I'm not going to consent to a search, but the police took the the police dog to the vehicle and as it was doing that the dog identified that the criminal defendant himself may have had drugs on him they went to the vehicle alerted you know the dog alerted again and then the officers decided to let the dog sniff the defendant the defendant's person and the dog identified that the the person had drugs on him person ran, you know, during the flight, discarded a bag of heroin. And ultimately, when he was charged with the crime, the defendant said, 
this was an unlawful search. You know, there was no, you know, no basis for a dog to sniff me personally. And so the drugs that you found shouldn't be able to be used against me at, at a trial. The trial court basically said, no, it's not a search. All the dog was just doing what it always does. There was no, you know, didn't touch the defendant, just was near him. That's not, you know, not a search. The appellate division disagreed and said, it is a search, but we think that there was reasonable suspicion and said the standard here is whether there was reasonable suspicion of a crime. Uh, and that the sniff by the dog was, you know, enough for reasonable suspicion. And that's that's how you got the posture to the Court of Appeals. What did the state's top court ultimately decide with regards to that dog sniff and, and what qualifies as a search? The Court of Appeals looked at the United States Supreme Court on precedent on how dog sniffing dogs are used and what the Supreme Court has said about that in the past. And the Supreme Court has said, you know, drug sniffing dogs are typically fine for inanimate objects because, you know, you know, a car, if you're sniffing a car, there's no reasonable expectation of privacy, you know, in a vehicle, right? Uh, so long as you're not in the vehicle and, you know, other things are, are satisfied. When it comes to a person, however, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your bodily integrity. So, you have a zone of privacy sort of around you that the government isn't allowed to enter under the Fourth Amendment. And the Fourth Amendment provides that protection. And what the what the what the Court of Appeals basically held is because it's not something we would typically want the government to go around doing. You don't want the government to be walking police dogs down the street, sniffing every single person who goes, you know, happens to just be walking on the street. That's not the type of uh, country that we live in. The people have a right of bodily privacy that extends beyond mere touching. So even if the dog doesn't touch the, the person, you still have a right to privacy. And so in that instance, because the dog sniff invaded that right to privacy, it is a search under the Fourth Amendment. Now, the Court of Appeals didn't answer the second question because just because it's a search doesn't mean it's an illegal search or an unconstitutional search under the Fourth Amendment. There still has to be an additional layer to determine what's the standard of review. Is it reasonable suspicion like the appellate division said? Is it probable cause? Is it some lesser standard that might apply to determine whether the search was constitutional? So what the Court of Appeals said was the dog sniff is a search. But we don't know if it was a constitutional or unconstitutional one, and we can't decide that issue because the trial court didn't decide that issue. So the Court of Appeals sent the case back to the trial court to decide, you know, what's the standard of review here and then determine in the first instance, was this constitutional or was it not? So could that question then end up before the state court of appeals eventually? Absolutely. And I would expect that it probably will, maybe in this case, maybe in another case. But I expect that the court, it'll come back to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals will decide it. 
And because it's a Fourth Amendment case under the United States Constitution, the Court of Appeals may not be the last word. It may, you know, head up to the Supreme Court at some some point to really lay down the law on whether this is a search under the Fourth Amendment. And if so, what's the right standard to decide whether it was a constitutional one or an unconstitutional one? Well, finally, I'm curious, these two cases we've talked about, other cases you followed in recent months, does the court seem to be changing directions or doubling down on certain rulings or philosophies under the new chief judge, Rowan Wilson? Or do you feel like maybe it's too soon to tell what sort of direction or shape this court is taking? I think you've, if you'd asked me that six months ago, I would have said it's it's too soon to try to decide which, you know, which way it's going to go. Now we have, you know, the end of last last term in the spring, last spring, we have, you know, all of the criminal cases that have been decided by the court for this past fall and now into the new year. And we're starting to see a trend that the Court of Appeals under Chief Judge Rowan Wilson is becoming much more protective of defendants' uh, constitutional rights, much more willing to put a, a limit on prosecutorial power than the court was previously under Janet DeFiori. Uh, you know, that's may, maybe it has everything to do with who the background of the chief judges are. You know, Janet DeFiori was the West Counter, Westchester County District Attorney. You know, Judge Wilson has always been on the more liberal side of the, the Court of Appeals. Uh, but you're definitely seeing a trend that is moving the court towards protection of criminal defendants' constitutional rights and away from where the court has been when Chief Judge DeFiori was, was at the helm. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Rob Rosborough. He's the author of the New York Appeals blog and a litigation partner with Whiteman, Osterman, and Hanna. Rob, thanks for the free legal advice. Not legal advice, but thanks again for having me. Capital Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.